All right. It's my favorite day of the re- day of the week right here. My favorite time of the day right here. We get to study Revelation. So we're going to be in Revelation 14. We're going to study the end tonight of Revelation 14. And um, it's one of those sections I've told you about, like it's really bad news. A lot of Revelation's full of bad news. You got to get through the bad news to get to the really good news. Well, I'm just telling you, tonight is bad, bad news. Now, the whole idea of the gospel, you know the gospel, the word means good news, right? The whole implication, if there's good news, there's got to be some bad news, or it wouldn't be good news, all right? So... I'm just going to warn you, we're getting to the end of the tribulation. We're studying the tribulation, that seven years that Jesus prophesied upon the earth shortly before he comes again. And that's what Revelation 14 is announcing, the seven bold judgments uh, toward the end of the tribulation. Let's pray and we'll get going and then write down your questions and comments and we'll have us a discussion. Jesus, we thank you tonight that you have given us an unveiling, the revelation so that we can understand what we're seeing in the time of the end in which we're now living. We thank you, Jesus, that you are coming quickly, that, Lord, we are that generation that could live to see the rapture of the church, to hear that trumpet sound one day. I pray the things that we're learning, God, would help us to live with urgency instead of complacency. Even in a world of uncertainty, God, fill us with your spirit. Teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to our study of the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 14, and we're winding it down, coming to the climax of the end times, the end of the tribulation. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, going through the end of the chapter, is the announcement by six angels of six plagues that are about to come, a series of six dramatic events that will really be the climax of the tribulation. We might call Revelation 14 kind of a table of contents, really for the entire tribulation. We can organize this chapter around each of these six angels and these subsequent announcements of these dramatic events that are forthcoming. So let's pick up our study where we left off last time, right here in verse 6 with the declaration of uh, the first angel, this declaration of the gospel. It says this in chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, the springs of water. Now I want you to see something in the middle of this tribulation, what Jesus called the great tribulation, such cataclysm, that the earth has never seen before, such devastation and such persecution uh, that it will be literally a holocaust for all of humanity. I want you to see, again, the mercy of God, that once again, He is wooing people to Himself. He is wooing them, giving them one last chance to turn to Him, giving them one last chance to hear the gospel. And what's amazing when you consider the cataclysm of the tribulation 
is this is going to be in a time of enormous revival upon the earth. Remember Revelation 7, the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe that miraculously received their Messiah. We learn that they fan out throughout the whole earth, bringing the gospel to every tribe and tongue and people and nation, which is why at the end of Revelation 7, John sees around the throne of God, not just the 144,000 Jews, but Gentiles too, those non-Jews from those various nations that have now been evangelized. It's what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 and verse 14 when he said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations, and then the end shall come. And that happens in the tribulation. The 144,000 Jews take the gospel to all nations. The gospel is going to be readily accessible. Even though the church has been raptured and there's no gospel witnessed by the church, God still has a way to advance the gospel to all nations, even in the tribulation. The 144,000 Jews, Revelation 7. Then you remember we studied the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. Of course, there will be... Uh, all types of Bibles and books that are still left behind that undoubtedly people would begin reading and poring over uh, 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 once again over things that they never considered even before. And so they'll have the opportunity in more ways than one to come to know the true and living Christ and reject the Antichrist. But now it's as though God surpasses all human means and actually begins using angel messengers to declare the gospel to all nations. And that's what happens here as uh, this angel flies, it says, in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. He swoops across the heavens, and as he does, this angel proclaims the gospel. You see, once again, we see that although God is indeed holy, and because he's holy, even now, he's about to bring down a penalty, the gavel, on the humanity and their sin. But again, he gives them mercy. He's once again wooing them uh, with his grace. Remember what it says in Second Peter 3 and verse 9, that God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, I think it's interesting that this gospel presentation doesn't center on the cross, but rather creation. Uh, look what it says here in verse 7. It says, Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and springs of water. I want you to notice, unlike uh, our gospel presentations that would immediately center on the cross and the Son of God who died for our sin, uh, it centers uh, on the God who made creation. That makes a lot of sense when you consider that we live at the end of time as we know it, the end of the age. And what are we known for at the end of this, season, uh, the end of this age? Uh, humanity is known increasingly for its secularism, uh, its, its atheism, its evolution, its Darwinism, its secular humanism. In other words, humanity largely has a worldview increasingly that doesn't include a view of God. And so uh, this, this gospel presentation, instead of going straight to the cross, it centers it on creation. You see, worship the God who is your creator, because the reality, if you cannot receive God as creator, you certainly cannot receive him as savior. And in this age, of course, of atheism and secular uh, humanism, 
Uh, it's Romans chapter 1 that we're even now living, and I'm convinced in the tribulation even more so. Remember what it says in Romans 1, they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. In other words, we have created the God we want instead of simply believing in the God who is. The God that made us in his image and his likeness, uh, we've made God in our image and our likeness. And we live even now at the end of the church age where we can see that encroaching worldview even in our day. Now just imagine what it will be like in the tribulation. The, the secular humanism, which is the deification of man, will be at an absolute zenith. It will be preeminent. Secular humanism is in essence a religious system that deifies humanity. And what you have at this time in the tribulation then is the deification of a man. The world will be worshiping a man. This man who now sits on a throne in Jerusalem that's proclaimed himself to be God, 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us, that will be worshiped all over the world as God, Revelation 13 tells us. All of a sudden he's deified himself, this, this man who's now Satan incarnate. And so we can see the secular humanism, this religion of man's deification, absolutely at his zenith. And so this angel proclaims with a strong gospel voice across the heavens and the earth one last time to put your faith in God and fear that one that made the heavens and the earth, that made creation. He is your creator, but he doesn't merely want to be your creator. He also wants to be your God and your savior. Now, we see the second angel make this declaration, and it's the destruction of Babylon. The first time Babylon is mentioned here in the book of Revelation. Look at verse 8. Says this in verse 8, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, Babylon is seen throughout the Bible, it's woven throughout the pages of Scripture, beginning in Genesis chapter 10. We're introduced to this ancient city of Babylon, it's where the builders of the Tower of Babel lived. And what we discover through the pages of Scripture is that Babylon in the Bible is a reference to both that ancient city, this wicked city in history, but also it's a symbol of a wicked world system, a world system that's always been in opposition to God's kingdom. And that world system is even now at work in our world. Uh, what is Babylon? What's the, um, the implication? Um, it's more than just a city. There's um, a Bible study principle that we teach if you go through discipleship too. And it's the law of first mention. The law of first mention simply says that however a word or phrase is used the first time in Scripture, that sets forth the definition, the pattern for how it's used thereafter. So when you go back to the first time we're introduced to Babylon, what do we learn in Genesis 10? Uh, its builder was a man by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod means Lord of Rebellion. The name Nimrod literally means rebel. And he was leading a rebellion, an insurrection against the God of heaven. That's why we learn they're building this tower, later known as the Tower of Babel. They said, let us build a city and a tower which will reach into the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Friends, listen carefully. That is secular humanism. Wanting to build a name for ourselves. In essence, to build a tower to reach into heaven apart from God because we have deified ourselves as though we are God. 
And what you see, instead of them scattering apart throughout the earth as God had told them to, to replenish the earth, the peoples of the earth at that time, just a few generations after the flood, refused to scatter abroad. Uh, We wanted to be one, one people. We're stronger together. And they said, together, we can build our own kingdom and we can build a name for ourselves. And we were going to build this utopian world, this utopian society in direct rebellion of God's face and God's name. Now listen carefully. If we have not returned to the days of Babel, I mean, think about it. The United Nations and the the definition of the United Nations, the stated declaration of the United Nations from the day it was chartered was what? A one world government to build a utopian society, a global community. And in essence, uh, that was the Tower of Babel and those builders of Babel in Genesis chapter 10. Now, of course, all of that is God's idea. Eventually, God is going to have an earthly kingdom and God is going to bring a global community, a global society in the millennial kingdom. The problem is man wants to do, apart from God, what only God can do. And you see, that secular humanism now at its zenith uh, with the building of the Tower of the Babel, and now we're introduced again to the city of Babel. Now Nimrod in Genesis 10, without question, is a type of Antichrist, or he's a prophetic foreshadow of the Antichrist, the one who is to come, who is going to lead an insurrection, another similar type of rebellion against God. And the prophet Isaiah saw this very same insurrection that John is now seeing, and also Babylon's destruction. Isaiah 21 and verse 9, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he has broken into the ground. You see, the Babylonians were an idolatrous people, a rebellious people against God. And so you see this uh, word Babylon throughout Scripture. Now it comes to a climax in the book of Revelation. And we're introduced now to its destruction. We're going to get a detailed graphic description in the next chapter of the destruction of Babylon, both that city as well as that wicked, wicked world system. And that in essence, is what is already at work. This world system that is already at work against God. It is anti-Christ. It is anti-God. It is anti-Bible. It's anti-anything that is holy. It is a world system that is seeking to advance Satan's kingdom in opposition, you see, to God's kingdom. But then the third angel announces the doom of the defectors. Look at what it says here now in verse 9. It says these words. Uh, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full of strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, And they have no rest day or night who worships the beast and his image who ever received the mark of his name. And so this third angel pronounces the doom of the defectors, those who defect from God's kingdom and begin waging war on Satan's side, advancing his kingdom, in essence, worshiping the beast and taking the mark of the beast and taking the mark of his name. He's simply saying here, those people are going to be damned. And the announcement of this angel puts it in precise terms. Listen, God's never wanted to confuse us. 
He's never wanted to uh, somehow uh, just talk in code so we don't fully get it. He, he's not trying in any way to trick us. He wants to put it in precise terms so that we can all understand. There are two kings, two kingdoms, two sides that are in direct opposition. Remember what Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. To choose not to choose is to choose to lose. And so this angel announced to those living at this time in the tribulation, worship the beast and be damned by God or worship God and be damned by the beast. And those that indeed worship God will indeed be damned by the beast and his kingdom. They will be martyred and mercilessly persecuted, but their pain will be for a short season. What God tells us now is that those who choose instead to worship the beast will not merely be damned for a short season temporarily. They will be damned for all of eternity. Would you look at what it says here? This is so precise and specific. There can't be any confusion here about the language that John is using under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. It's become very popular, even within the church, even within what we call evangelical Christianity, to deny the doctrine of eternal destruction for those who reject Christ, the, the, the idea of an eternal hell being an eternal place of torment. And some have even coined the term uh, a Christian universalism, this idea that in the end, everyone receives him, that hell is not eternal, and uh, torment will not last forever. And I want you to see that the language here does not give us any hope of that, doesn't give us any opportunity to take that seriously. And the reason why I'm convinced is, is we have such a difficult time, even in the church in this late hour, believing in this doctrine is simply because we, we want the more politically correct Jesus, a politically correct God. Our image of God has been so skewed by pop culture, I'm convinced personally, that we see God not for who He is, but for who we want. We see God as this doting grandfather in the sky that's rocking on His rocking chair with His long white beard, just kind of winking at our mischievous ways. And that is not remotely the God of the Bible. The, the writer of Hebrews said our God is a consuming fire. And yes, He's infinitely full of mercy, yet He's infinitely holy. And because He is infinitely holy... It demands an infinite penalty. And so, yes, there's infinite mercy for those that will receive His mercy, but for those that will reject His salvation, there's an infinite destruction and there's an in infinite damnation. And, and we seem to be at a time where theologically people can't harmonize both of them. It's as though God is one or the other. Either He is infinitely full of love and grace and mercy, or He's infinitely full of wrath and damnation. It's one of the two. And friends, I'm telling you, it's not one of the two, but rather both. Because God is infinite. His attributes also are infinite. Which means heaven will be eternal, but hell will be as well. Which means His mercy is infinite upon those that receive the salvation made possible through the cross of Calvary. But His damnation will be infinite on those who reject Him. And these are not mutually exclusive attributes of God, though we see within the church, the church falling away increasingly from this foundational, fundamental,
concept and doctrine of the Christian faith. I was startled by a research project done by Northwestern University a number of years ago. They discovered 96% of congregational ministers do not believe in a literal hell. 96% of Episcopalian ministers do not believe in a literal hell. 92% of Methodist ministers do not believe in a literal hell. 85% of Presbyterian ministers do not believe in a literal hell. 30% of Lutheran pastors do not believe in a literal hell. And this one I found really startling. 50% of Baptist ministers do not believe in a literal hell. So it's it's not a, a surprise at all that there's no preaching on hell these days because the average pastor and the average church no longer believes in it. But of course, there was no confusion about what Jesus thought about it. Jesus talked about hell more than any other subject. Look in the Gospels, look at the words in red, and see how many times Jesus talked about hell compared to the number of times he talked about heaven. He talked about hell at least four times as much that he ever talked about heaven. Jesus referred to Gehenna, or the lake of fire specifically, 12 times. It's mentioned specifically. You know, we want to think of Jesus honestly in, in our little iconic pop images of Jesus and the paintings that maybe hung on our grandmother's kitchen wall. You know, Jesus maybe carrying that little lamb or maybe bouncing children on his knee, that little gentle Jesus. It's perfectly safe and absolutely not a threat to anybody. I want you to understand, Jesus indeed is gentle as our Savior. He's the Lamb of God that was slain for our sin willingly, suffering in our place. But for those that reject Him, He's not Savior. He will one day be judge. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, He's coming back one day, you see, not to merely suffer. He's coming back to conquer. And He's coming back, Revelation 19 says, and He will, he will, he will tread out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. You see, there's more than one attribute of God. And we cannot merely cling to the God that we want. We must put our hope and trust in the God that is. And the tribulation is not the time of the Lamb who's going to suffer. It's the time of the Lion of the tribe of Judah that's coming back to conquer. And we can see these plagues upon the earth. Uh, and it's, uh, it's coming increasingly faster with more and more intensity as the tribulation comes to a climax. And it's coming, you see, to a conclusion. I want you to see next the death of the saints. Look at verse 12. It says these words, the death of the saints. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. You see, there's a time in this tribulation where those who follow Jesus and reject the Antichrist, they will indeed suffer horrifically, temporarily. Uh, they will be martyred and they will be tortured. But look at this promise that Jesus now makes them blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Though they suffer persecution, they will not suffer forever. He says, you will find rest. I'm convinced personally that uh, those alive at the time following Jesus will be pouring over the book of Revelation. And they will be looking for answers. And they'll be pouring over the book of Revelation because now they become a believer, not just in the Son of God, but in the Word of God. And they're going to find this promise 
during this time of tribulation and find comfort and encouragement from this promise that the day is coming very shortly that they will find rest to their labor. The 13th verse, blessed are they who die in the Lord. Their ultimate victory will be that they choose to die instead of live. They will have been starved, having not taken the mark of the beast. They won't be able to buy, sell, or trade. They'll be considered treasonous as enemies of the state. They will be hunted, you see, probably as terrorists and treasonous members of, these, uh, of this society from which they have defected. Uh, they've come to Christ. It's too late for the rapture, but too soon for the millennial kingdom. They come to Christ during this time of intense tribulation. They've endured pain and suffering, starvation, imprisonment, and death, but they will find rest. This Greek word for rest is anapau. It pictures a sailor who is coming into the harbor, having been out to sea in the middle of a storm, and he has fought the winds, he's fought the waves, he has fought the rain, he's wondered at times if he's even going to survive, will he even be able to stay afloat? And now he's coming to find rest, finally, in a safe harbor. In some manner, that's how these tribulation saints are going to enter heaven's gates. They, they will have finally found the rest, the anapau, uh, having fought the storms of starvation and persecution. And finally, they're going to find rest. You know, that'll give some of us comfort, quite frankly, because though we're not in the tribulation, every single day in this cursed world, cursed by sin, we go through tribulation. You know what Jesus promises? One day soon, we too will find Anna Powell. It's rest. Rest for our souls. Rest at heaven's gates. God promises rest for those that follow him. Now there's a fifth angel and it announces the destruction of the people. Look at verse 14. It says this, and then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he has sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Once again, we see this fifth angel, another angel coming to announce this plague, to announce this judgment known as the bold judgments. Now, remember, as we read chapter 14, we're in essence reading a snapshot of things that are to come. God is giving us, kind of like in Revelation 6, where we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and it's kind of that high-level view, the 30,000-foot view of the tribulation, God is giving us once again kind of a look, a glimpse of things to come with these bold judgments that are about to be poured out upon the earth. Remember, Revelation cannot really be read chronologically or linearly. I'm convinced as we study these judgments, beginning with the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and now the bold judgments, that in essence, we're reading layers, and God is peeling back one layer after another, layer after layer, giving us one graphic description and more detail after another. What we find is that the seal judgments come first, but in that seventh seal contained the seven trumpet judgments, and in that seventh trumpet judgment contained the seven bowl judgments. So in essence, we see it layered. God is giving us more description of the things that we've already studied and the things that we are, you see, about to read. Now, 
I want you to see the wine press literally here pictures God trampling the earth underneath his feet in judgment. And this is what this angel announced. God is about to trample out the earth. Uh, then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, verse 14, and in his hand a sharp sickle, and another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he sat on the cloud, thrust in a sickle, and the earth was reaped. And I want you to see that uh, this, this wine press, this destruction in some way literally uh, pictures him trampling out the earth and trampling on the peoples of the earth. In ancient days, as they would harvest uh, the grapes for wine, they would put clusters of grapes in a vat. And then one or more people would get in the vat and literally start stomping on the grapes, walking on the grapes. And they might do this for hours, just walking in circles. This is how they got wine. How would you like uh, to drink some grape juice that somebody's dirty, stinky feet has trampled on? All right, I'm not trying to gross you out, but that's how they did it in the ancient days. That's how they harvested the grape juice or the fruit of the vine, the, the wine. And that, in essence, is the imagery that's going on here. Uh, the, the, the world is now ready for this harvest as God is about to trample out in vengeance uh, upon people's sin. In Revelation 6, uh, we saw the souls under the altar uh, that had been martyred and their blood had been shed by the Antichrist and his kingdom. And God is about to say, look, you shed the blood of the saints and now I'm about to take vengeance on you. Remember Revelation 19, verse 15. He treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Remember what it says in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. And God is now lowering the gavel upon humanity. He is bringing down the gavel of judgment. The wages of sin is death. He has offered mercy to generation after generation. He's offered opportunity for salvation to generation after generation after generation. He has stayed His hand of judgment again and again and again, generation after generation after generation. They killed His prophets. Uh, they killed His own Son. They martyred those in the church. They martyred His missionaries, His witness. And now, He's about to bring down the gavel. The age of grace is over. And judgment now begins. The clusters of grapes, notice, are fully ripened. And the reason why is it's time for God's judgment. It's now ready. The sickle representing God's judgment is thrust into the grapes and from which the grapes pour out the fruit of the vine. The wine, of course. And remember, wine in the Bible, you know this, is a symbol of what? It's a symbol of blood. And so as the sickle representing God's judgment is thrust into these grapes, outpours the wine. And of course, this is a foreshadowing of an outpouring of blood. The blood of men will now be shed for their sin. Revelation 19 and verse 15. This wine press, of course, represents the earth. This huge vat, and God Himself is now trampling on this wine press. He's trampling out the men because of the rebellion and their sin. Now I want you to see the devastation of Armageddon as we conclude this chapter. Look at what it says now in verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. 
And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. I want you to notice exactly what God is now doing. Remember what it says in Romans uh, chapter 16, or I should say chapter 12. Remember what it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Remember, he, he reminds the Romans, as he reminds all of us, that in times of persecution, vengeance is not ours. Uh, we're not to take vengeance on our enemies. Remember what Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who abuse you, bless those who spitefully use you and you know what he says listen you don't need to keep score i'm keeping score all right i got the scorecard and the day's coming i'm going to bring judgment i'm going to bring vengeance and in essence this is the fulfillment of that promise of romans 12 and verse 19 when he says vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and there's a payday someday for the sin wickedness and rebellion of fallen men psalm 9 and verse 17 the wicked shall be turned to hell and all nations that forget god psalm 11 and verse 6 upon the wicked he shall rain snares fire and brimstone and a horrible tempest this is the portion of their cup psalm 145 and verse 20 the lord preserves all them that love him but the wicked will he destroy and god is now making good on that promise that he made centuries and centuries ago, that right now it may seem that wickedness wins and it seems that righteousness retreats, but the day is coming that righteousness is going to win and wickedness will forever be abolished, forever and ever. Amen. What you see now is uh, uh, the beginning of Armageddon. Everybody's heard of the Battle of Armageddon. Even those that don't believe the Bible have heard of Armageddon, the famous battle of Armageddon that brings the tribulation to a climax and a conclusion. And what we see here is that there is a payday someday for all the wickedness in our world. And we're going to see this detailed more and more in the pages that follow. But, but there's going to be a 200 million man army that crosses from the east, we're told. And the nations of the earth gather their armies in the valley of Megiddo, or Armageddon, also known as the Jezreel Valley. And this is the place of war that John now says that the grapes have been gathered into this wine press. And this angel, it says, comes out from under the altar. Now what is interesting about that is we don't have to wonder why he comes out from under the altar. Remember Revelation chapter 6, souls under the altar. Who were they? They were the martyred saints that were martyred in the tribulation. Remember what they're asking? They're saying to God, how long, O Lord, faithful and true, do you not judge and make war and avenge our blood? But you remember what God said? He said, wait for just a little season until the number of your brethren are also martyred. And they were handed out white robes. Well, guess what? The time of waiting is no more. And this angel comes out from underneath that altar where those fallen saints are, where those martyred saints are. And in essence, what he's saying to the world is you want blood, I'm going to give you blood. But it's not going to be the blood of the saints. I'm going to give you your blood. 
because you shed the blood of the people of God. Now I'm going to shed yours. Listen, you better make sure you're on the winning side because God's side is the winning side. I want you to see that in the end, that's the choice that each of us have. Not that we're going to be in the tribulation. I pray that you won't be in the tribulation, but every single one of us face the same decision. It's not as God on our side. The question is always, am I on God's side? Because if you're on God's side, you're on the only winning side. This famous battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo. Go back with me to Joel chapter 3 as we conclude for a little more description of what we're seeing. The Hebrew prophets saw this very battle. And they wrote extensively about it. And now John is seeing the same battle. In Joel chapter 3 and verse 11, look what the prophet Joel says. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. The very same imagery that John uses. Come, go down, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. There it is, that valley of decision. Listen, we, even though we're not going to be in the tribulation, have to make that same decision. We're in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for His people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. And we can see that description in Joel and other of the ancient prophets. And now John gives us that same description. And look what he says here. This is amazing in verse 20. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. Where else have we seen that phrase, outside the city? It tells us in the Gospels that the blood of Jesus was shed outside the city. And now God tells us the blood of wicked men will be shed outside the city. You shed the blood of my son outside the city. Now I'm going to shed yours. And the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. 1,600 furlongs is 184 miles, almost the exact length of the land of Israel north and south. The valley of Megiddo, roughly a mile wide. It varies some, but it's a long, narrow valley. And one has to wonder, is this literal? Is John speaking literally? Is it symbolic? We can debate that. Many do. Is it literal? Is it figurative? Some say it's merely symbolic when it says the blood is up to the horse's bridle. Uh, the reality is I don't know, but I'm convinced it's far more literal than any of us probably can imagine. Up to the horse's bridle, picture blood four or five feet in depth for 184 miles long. Now that seems just unbelievable, insurmountable, but I want to remind you, we, we've studied a 200 million man army that will come from the east that will converge on this location. That doesn't include other armies of other nations. You're talking tens of millions, hundreds of millions of men in one area geographically. Somebody actually did the research and discovered that if you had a 200 million man army converge in this one area that's described here, 
strung out over a mile wide and about 200, mil, uh, 200 miles in length, each man to have only about 25 square feet. Now, you add the other armies to that, and you can begin to see why there's just a mass of humanity, a sea of humanity here. Now, as a former cop, I have personally seen how much blood can come out of one person. Now, multiply that by tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and you can begin to see why, just maybe, what John sees is literal, not symbolic, blood up to the horses' bridles. And of course, people ask, well, will, will they really be waging war on horseback? Well, think about this for just a moment. At the end of the tribulation, because of all the earth's cataclysms and warfare, etc., the oil refineries will all have been shut down and will have been shut down for many months by this time. So in all probability, what we think of today as a modern mechanized army won't be like it is today. There won't be the diesel fuel. There won't be the oil refineries for the gasoline. And so it's entirely possible that many of these men will indeed be on horseback. And in some way, what John now sees is uh, this, 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 this holocaust of God's judgment upon these men. Indeed, hundreds of millions slain in this valley at this battle of Armageddon, this war to end all wars as Jesus prepares to return to establish His kingdom. And friends, it will be, praise God, without end. Hey, I love you so much. We'll pick it up there next time. I told you the bad days are bad, but the good news is good, isn't it? What do you want to talk about? Questions? you jot anything down? Okay, we're going to wait for Mike so we can put this out again on the web. So the Q&A, if you ever aren't here, you can uh, look it up on iTunes. That's where if, we put uh, it. the angel comes across proclaiming the gospel in the ears, uh, will he be doing that in everybody's uh, tongue and language? Do you feel like that? Oh, I, I presume so. And uh, will that be probably the largest sound system that ever was on this earth? <laughs> I'd call it like a supernatural sound system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's parts of the book of Revelation. Why am I convinced we're living in prophetic times? There's many, many reasons. If you've been uh, listening since a year ago, this past summer, I began a series in Revelation, really last summer, and then we picked up the well to fill in all the gaps. You know, there's areas of Revelation, I'm convinced, that even now uh, couldn't have happened even just 20 years ago. Think about the mark of the beast technology. In Revelation 13, we didn't do Revelation 13 here at the well. I did three sermons from Revelation 13 last summer, and they're still on the web if you want to listen. Well, what is the mark of the beast technology? It's got to be in some way a microchip. GPS technology, the ability for a one-world currency that is a cashless society, and uh, it's not science fiction, it's real science. It's already here. It's really happened. Uh, there are companies in the United States, even now, fitting its employees with this type of chip. That's not the mark of the beast, but that's the technology that John is describing 2,000 years ago. So my point is simply this. There are elements of revelation that couldn't have come true. Even just 20 years ago, you can begin to see why I'm personally convinced we're living at the time that John is now seeing. Uh, I used to, you know, in Revelation 1 where it says, when Jesus returns at his second coming, every eye will see him. And I used to think, well, that's because of satellite television. 
I mean, just in the last 20 years, can you see what's happening around the world in real time? Think about that for a moment. But, but in this case, we're not talking about satellite television and 21st century technology where every eye can see the same thing wherever they are in the world because of satellite TV. I don't think so. I think when Jesus comes back, his presence is going to be so awesome. You know what? If God didn't veil himself right now, his light would flood the entire universe. Do you realize that? When Jesus returns, it's not going to be satellite TV. Every eye is going to see him in the same way every eye sees that rising sun. It's going to be so bright, it's going to chase away the night. I think in some way this angel's appearance is similar. It's not going to be needed satellite television. It's not going to you know, be needed some you know, technological system where everybody can see what's happening in some way on the TV. We're talking supernatural occurrences by this time in the tribulation, supernatural, where an angel begins flying over the earth proclaiming the gospel of the God that made you as the God that now wants to save you. And I certainly believe that uh, it will be in every tongue, every language, as it was on the day of Pentecost. Everybody there heard the gospel in their spoken tongue. In some supernatural way, God is simply doing that again. He's saying, come. Yeah. I, I missed it. Um, what did you say the wine press represents? So the wine press, uh, in this case, would be the earth. Okay? And so you can see the imagery here. As it was in the ancient days, they would put that cluster of ripe grapes into a vat. And that vat was called the wine press. And it might be a, you know, something you know, very, fairly large or small, depending on the size of your vineyard. And uh, then they'd have themselves a wine pressing party. But you get in barefoot and start pressing down the wine. And the wine would come flowing out of the vat as you crushed the grapes underfoot. And that's the imagery now. So the wine press specifically would have to do with the earth and the sin of men. The angel says, the grapes are now ready. They are ripened. And there's a point where sin comes to full fruition. And toward the end of the tribulation, the sin of men has come to full fruition. The grapes are now ready to be harvested. He sticks in his sickle, that sign of judgment. And uh, he treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. You understand, God has always been full of mercy. You know, you hear this sometimes, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. You see that false dichotomy often. As though, you know, God changed his mind in the New Testament. He was too angry back then, so, you know, he's a little nicer now. Which is just honestly silly. You can see God's mercy in the Old Testament as you see his wrath. This morning, James talked about Rahab the harlot. What an act of mercy. Here was a pagan Canaanite prostitute who, because of her belief in the God of Israel, found mercy in the God of Israel, right? Uh, but you hear, you know, the God of the Old Testament, God of anger, God of wrath, God of the New Testament, God of grace, God of mercy. You know, it's really silly. Even in the middle of God's wrath, in the New Testament, the book of true Revelation, he still shows his mercy, doesn't he? Anyone that wants to come can come. But I was going to say, you can see this type pattern in Scripture. 
uh, when God is giving Abraham the covenant, he's promising Abraham the promised land, okay? And then he says, but I'm going prof- to promise you something. I'm going to send you, your people, out of this land for 400 years. And we know they were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. Now, here's why God said that. Because the sins of the Amorites have not yet come to fruition. They haven't come to fulfillment. See, God was staying his hand of judgment on those ancient Canaanites, those, those pagans, those idolaters that would worship their false gods, their demon gods, by literally child sacrifice. And what he was saying is, for 400 years, I'm going to stay my hand of judgment against them. I'm going to give them a chance for 400 years to repent. And then I'm going to send you back into the land, for the sins of the Amorites have not been fulfilled. You see, God knows when the sin of men hasn't come to fruition. And during that time where it's still coming to complete fruition, he's wooing them, even as he's warning them. He wants to forgive them, not fry them. But there's a point. And I personally feel like, and you probably can feel the same way, that the sin of men is reaching a breaking point once again. And in the tribulation, that sin has bloomed a complete fruition where God cannot stay his hand any longer, and the gavel comes down once and for all and forever. Somebody else? Yeah. Do you think the armed forces of the nations of the world might be a catalyst for the rest of the civilian population to receive the mark of the beast not knowing since the services already maybe have it it'll be a flow into the civilian sector well I do now if I if I understand your question um, correctly remember people aren't going to think to themselves I'm going to take the mark of the beast today Remember 2 Thessalonians 2, they're going to be sent strong delusion. That they're going to be, believe a lie, it says. And so they're going to be under delusion. They're going to be, believe a lie. Uh, whatever lie is propagated at the time, we've talked what I think at least will be the lie. And so because they're under delusion, spiritual delusion, uh, they're not going to think in terms, I'm taking the mark of the beast. They're going to think in terms, I'm taking some modern technology that's going to unite the nations, and because of this, we're going to end the competition among nations. We're coming together in a spirit of cooperation. This technology is now going to be a cashless society. It's going to be some type of one-world currency. It's going to increase my personal security. No more lost or stolen identity. Not only that, GPS technology. I mean, who wouldn't want, you know, I can be found anywhere in the world. No more abductions. And, you know, my children can never know, never again be lost. And so for the vast masses of humanity, this is going to be a great idea. Why wouldn't they? And what they're doing, though, by taking that mark is they are, in essence, taking an oath of allegiance. Just like we as Americans, we take the Pledge of Allegiance, right? I pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. In essence, though, what this mark will be is taking a pledge of allegiance to this, I'm going to use the term, New World Order. Because that's what it will be, a New World Order. By the way, that is the term that... Uh, many government officials, even within our own government, have used. 
The stated goal of the UN since its inception is what? UN stands for? Unite the Nations. I mean, that's what people are working for in this world, to unite the nations, to end global competition, to come together in one big utopian global society. And when you take the mark, in essence, what you're doing is you're saying, I am now a citizen of a united world. You're taking a pledge of allegiance to this king and his kingdom, which is why if you won't, it will be seen as treasonous. You will be a traitor, guys. And once again, uh, if you don't understand history, you can't understand prophecy. Uh, I want you to understand that phrase we like to say, well, history repeats itself. Well, guess what? It does. Right? According to Daniel chapter 2 and other pa pa passages, the kingdom of Antichrist is in some way a revived Roman Empire. The Antichrist in some way is a revived Roman Caesar, not literally revived as in reincarnated, but symbolized, all right? So what you have, Daniel's ten toes, you have a revival of the old Roman Empire geopolitically. The same geography in some capacity will be the power base militarily and politically of the Antichrist, okay? Now, if it is a revived Roman Empire and these ten nations, his his political power base of ten nations that roughly correspond to the old Roman Empire. He, in essence, is a Roman Caesar. What was going on in the early days of Christianity when Christians were persecuted mercilessly by the Romans? As many as five million Christians were put to death under the Roman sword and Roman persecution in the first 300 years of Christianity. Why were they? Now listen, historically, when the Romans conquered a people... They would not demand that they quit worshiping their gods. The Romans were pluralistic already. They, they believed in many gods, multiple gods. So if they conquered you, they would just add your gods to their gods. We're all good, right? Hey, the problem, though, for Jews and Christians, the reason they were hated by Roman society, is that Jews and Christians were monotheistic. They did not worship multiple gods, pluralism, they were monotheistic. They worshipped one God. And for the early Christians, they could not worship not only the pagan gods, but it was a complete blasphemous act to worship Caesar. And it was demanded wherever you were in the Roman world that once a year you had to go to the nearest temple to Caesar and take a pinch of incense and sprinkle it on the altar and say these words, Hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord. But those early Christians knew Caesar isn't Lord. There's only one Lord whose name is Jesus. Now here's the deal. They weren't put to death because Christians worshiped Jesus. The Romans would have gladly let them worship Jesus if they just would have worshipped Caesar. Now, history repeats itself. Why will these Christians be martyred and put to death that refuse to take the mark of the beast, to swear allegiance to the beast and his kingdom for the very same reason? See, early Christians were not martyred and persecuted really for religious reasons as much as political reasons. They were seen as traitors to the state. They were seen as treasonous because they would not worship a man who was known as Caesar. And in these last days in the tribulation, the world will what? Not only swear their allegiance to this man, this counterfeit king, 
but according to Revelation chapter 13, they will be martyred because they won't. They will be put to death because they will not worship a man who has deified himself. That's what Caesar did. He deified himself. He demanded to be worshipped. And as it was in the early days of Christianity, history comes full circle. It happens again. Somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about in verse 18 about the angel coming out from underneath the altar. Is that vengeance for the martyrs? Is that I, I absolutely think so, David. I think there's a direct relationship there. If you go back to Revelation 6, you see the souls under that same altar. And what are they asking for under that same altar? These are the souls that have been martyred in the tribulation. Their blood has been shed by the beast and his kingdom. And what are they asking for? They're asking for vengeance. They ask, how long, O Lord, faithful and true, do you not judge and make war and avenge our blood? And what does it say in Revelation 6? God tells them, just wait. Wait for a little season until the number of your brethren has been martyred as well. And uh, he doesn't do anything but tell them to wait. Gives them white robes and just hang on, right? Well, now all of a sudden, out of that same altar flies an angel. And he's got a sharp sword and a sickle. And in essence, what God is now doing, he's looking at those souls under the altar and saying, guys, this is the answer to your prayer. Now I'm going to take vengeance on your blood. They shed your blood, now I'm going to shed theirs. Pastor Phil, I've, uh, I've been hung up on last week's 144,000 um, that go out and preach the gospel. As believers, and it's amazing that how many people out there, you know, have questions, but if you, you, you come to understand Revelation, then you kind of know what to look out for. And wouldn't we as believers know that the end times were near if you start to see 144,000 Jews go out and preach the gospel? i tell you what, if, if, if it should ever happen that you turn on the news and CNN or Fox begins covering this undeniable, unmistakable revival in Israel where thousands and thousands of Jews are now confessing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, and lo and behold, it's exactly 12,000 from each tribe. If that ever happens, guys, we're going to come back to the well, and the first thing I'm going to do is say, sorry. <laughs> um, apparently, it's not pre-tribulational rapture. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, uh, we're still here. The revival's happening there. So here's what happens. Um, this, this, this revival does happen. I'm convinced early in the tribulation. As I said, the hardest thing about Revelation, sorry, that's a tic-tac. <laughs> I forgot to turn my mic off, so I'm crunching in your ear. But, hey, it saves me from bad breath. You'd rather have the crunch in the ear, wouldn't you? So I've told you, the hardest thing about studying Revelation is not figuring out what's going to happen. It's just figuring out the timeline of when it happens. And uh, in some way, I'm convinced, as I've said, it's written linearly in layers as opposed to chronologically linearly. It's written in layers. And that's what makes it a little bit harder to put together a timeline of events. But I think the implication in Revelation 7 is uh, you have the 12,000 from each tribe. And that happens fairly early in the tribulation, probably... Fairly quickly after Daniel 9.27, the peace covenant is signed. 
And all of a sudden, Joel chapter 2, we looked at last week, it's a supernatural awakening that happens to the Jews. Right now, the Apostle Paul said, they have fallen asleep spiritually until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. In other words, God allowed the Jews to fall asleep spiritually, temporarily, for the salvation of the non-Jews, you and me. And now with the rapture of the church, the times of the Gentiles are over. And actually, Luke 21, 24 tells us the times of the Gentiles ended in 1967 with the Six Days War. When the Jews rolled back into Jerusalem and took back the holy city for the first time in 2,000 years, Jesus said that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. What does that mean? 1967, end of the Six Days War, no longer is Jerusalem trampled underfoot by Gentiles. The Jews roll back in for the first time in 2,000 years. Do you understand what that means? Every day since 1967, at the end of the Six Days War, every single day, is one more day of grace. Because biblically speaking, that was the last thing that had to happen. There's no more prophecy in Scripture that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus Christ returns. The Jews had to be back in the land. They are. And they had to be back in Jerusalem. They is. (laughs) Which means nothing left biblically needs to happen now. Now, what what happens? After the rapture, you have at some point within weeks or months the signing of this peace treaty, Daniel 9.27. The Antichrist brokers a seven-year peace covenant, and that seven-year peace covenant becomes the countdown to Armageddon. From the moment that peace treaty is signed, according to Daniel 9.27, that begins the countdown to Armageddon. That will come within weeks or a few months, probably after the rapture. Now, What happens right after that, I'm convinced, is this awakening spiritually begins to take place. All of a sudden, God lifts the veil from off their eyes. They wake up spiritually. They realize what happened. They crucified their Messiah. What are Orthodox Jews now praying for? When you see them at the wailing wall, they are praying for their Messiah to come. They're still waiting on their Messiah to come, but he came 2,000 years ago. They crucified him. All of a sudden, there's an awakening of 144,000. They realize what they've done. Jesus is the one. He is the promised son. He is the anointed one. And that's a supernatural awakening that takes place then. That begins the revival that will happen throughout the nations. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nations, what John says at the end of Revelation 7. Does that answer your question? Kind of, sort of. So... You know, we, we live on, we, I think we live close enough to the rapture, or right on the threshold of time as we knew it. We can see some of these signs beginning to emerge. We won't be here to see all of them. Remember in Matthew 24, Jesus said it was like a woman in travail, birth pangs. Uh, and just as a woman giving birth knows, it begins very slowly, very subtly. And then with each contraction, it works up with more intensity and more pain, and they're coming quicker and quicker and faster and faster. I personally think we're close enough to begin seeing some of those contractions beginning. Then the rapture happens. And then what we see in Revelation, beginning with the seals and the trumpets, now the bulls, those contractions come quicker and faster with more intensity By the time you get to the bowl judgments, they're happening faster and faster and faster and faster, culminating with Armageddon and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Anybody else? Let me ask you this. As we study Revelation together, and a lot of you have been at this a long time with me, what do we do with this? How should it change us? Seriously. I emphasize this often, guys. If this is nothing more than an academic pursuit, the pursuit of knowledge, it really is a waste of time. Marge, how should it change us? Absolutely, yes. Good. It should give us a sense of urgency. She says, not just sitting on our behinds. Well said. That's good preaching. Because uh, the church has sat on its behind for a long time. And so as we study this together, if we really believe we're living in prophetic times, that we're living in times that John saw 2,000 years ago, and now we're seeing these prophecies fulfilled in our lifetime. Can you imagine 1,000 years ago, uh, for those who could read the Bible, which was few because it was a capital offense to have a Bible 1,000 years ago, we'll be talking about that in Revelation 17. And who is this harlot that John sees, this church that has prostituted herself with paganism? Well, we're not, we're not going there yet. <laughs> hang on, hang on. But let's say, let's, say, let's say you could have read the book of Revelation a thousand years ago. Let, let's say you would have been able to read the words of Jesus a thousand years ago in Luke 21, 24. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, what happened a thousand years ago? What was going on? The Crusades? Do you know why the Catholic Pope launched the Crusades? Who had control of Jerusalem? Muslims. And why did the Catholic Church launch the Crusade? To take back Jerusalem, which they did very temporarily but they didn't hang on to it. Now you begin to see why the Catholic Church launched that crusade, because the Pope knew as long as Jerusalem is trampled underfoot by Gentiles, Jesus can't come. Well, we're going to help Jesus get the job done. <laughs> they see the mentality a thousand years ago? Now, it ended in absolute disaster. It did for that pagan-slash-Christian church, and that's what the Roman church was a thousand years ago. Lots of paganism had entered into the church by that time in church history. Well, what happens now? The Christians or the pseudo-Christians had to retreat, and eventually Jerusalem fell, and it did indeed fall under Muslim control for the next 700 years. Now imagine that promise that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Can you imagine Christians several hundred years ago? They could not have fathomed the day would ever come. Could it ever come? It will never come that Jerusalem isn't trampled underfoot by Gentiles. Now, can you begin to see what I'm convinced? The, the biblical, miraculous intervention of God that we happen to be the generation 
that we've seen all these promises be fulfilled that God made to his people by covenant. Yes, I'm going to scatter you abroad among other nations because of your sin, but one day I promise to bring you back again. And that's what happened at the end of World War I. Balfour Declaration, finally the Jews legally could return to the land. Oh, but they still didn't have Jerusalem. Not even close. 1948, they become a nation. Miraculous, miraculous rebirth. 1967, they take back the city. Miraculous. Generations before us would have thought that can never happen. That will never happen. But we live at a time that we can say it did. Happened in our lifetimes or close to it. Some of us were alive in 1967. Some of us were alive in 1948. It happened in our lifetime. Is this so much to think just maybe the rest of these prophecies will happen in our lifetime too? See, they're happening already, aren't they? And you can see why God's given us the revelation. It means unveiling. God has unveiled our eyes so that we can see the times in which we live to understand what God is going to do. Yes, sir. Thanks, David. I'm not being facetious with this question. Do you think that the world will allow, especially Russia, the Trump building, the American embassy to be built and draw all of the other allies of America into Jerusalem to build their embassy? Okay, so say it one more time. Question, do I think what? Do you think that the Russians or the Antichrist movement, the one world government per se, yeah. will permit the Trump Tower American embassy to actually be built right. and completed, which will be a magnet as far as the rest of our allies to do the same thing? So I do, I do think that the U.S. will build their embassy in Jerusalem, uh, but it will be a very temporary victory. In fact, if you really want to try to put current events up against, uh, you know, scripture and prophecy, um, I don't think it's um, coincidence, accident whatsoever that Trump got elected, whether you like him or not. In fact, what we know absolutely, regardless of who's in office, guys, it is God, according to Romans 13, that sets up civil authority and takes out civil authority. So regardless of who wins in any election, we just have to say, God, you know, all right? It wasn't my guy, but you know what you're doing. <laughs> and here's the point, though. Whether you like Trump or not, and of course he's the most polarizing president maybe in American history, there's no doubt in my mind that he is God's man for the moment. Because he's the only U.S. president in all of U.S. history for the last 30 years who actually made good on that promise. Bill Clinton said he would move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He didn't. George Bush said he would move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He didn't. Barack Obama was smart enough to never make that promise. <laughs> and then one guy finally comes along and actually does it. Now, when I say that's prophetic, I, I think that, that there's no coincidence there. Um, I, I think that it, it clearly wasn't accidental, but here's what I think is happening, guys. In some way, what looks like a great victory 
And those of us that understand the Abrahamic covenant can only uh, support Jews, the Jews. Uh, Jesus was a Jew. To be anti-Semitic uh, means to be anti-Jesus. Okay? And so there's a reason why Christians historically support Israel and support the Jews. We have a Jewish Savior. Our Christian heritage come out of the land of Israel. Uh, Judaism uh, is a natural uh, relationship to what it means to be a Christian. In fact, do you understand early Christians who were coming out of Judaism, they didn't see themselves as leaving Judaism become a Christian. It wasn't like Apostle Peter or Paul ever thought one day in their life, I stopped being a Jew to be a Christian. This is just a natural progression of what it meant to be a Jew. But what is happening, I'm convinced, and what looks like a temporary victory for, you know, kind of a Judeo-Christian uh, bastion, so to speak, that, you know, the U.S. is still going to ally itself with Israel, and we mean it so much that we're going to bring the embassy to Jerusalem, and we don't care what the rest of you think. Well, uh, we can all cheer for that. I think we ought to cheer for that, but you understand what's happening it's making the divide between East and West even wider. The hostility, the animosity, the enmity. And so you can see why Israel's enemies will march on her at their first opportunity. Ezekiel 38, I've told you, Battle Gog and Magog, Russia in coalition with Arab nations, it's prophesied, will march on Israel to push her into the Mediterranean, to annihilate her, finally and forever. Ezekiel 38, God miraculously intervenes for her. I'm convinced it happens right after the rapture. You know why? Because the rapture will neutralize the U.S. as we know it, and Israel's enemies will know they ain't coming. And the only reason they don't now is because they know the U.S. cavalry is on the way. They invade Israel, uh, especially with who we have in office right now, <laughs> um, and so here's the point when we can't come that's when they make their move and they come and I think that uh, you know Trump's stand in front of a watching world that is becoming increasingly anti-Semitic Western Europe increasingly is turning against Israel even many in our own nation turning against Israel seen as the big bad bullies of the Middle East and uh, you know the PLO and Hezbollah and these other terrorist groups are now seen as freedom fighters. And what we're seeing is, I'm convinced, this growing animosity, this hostility, and honestly moving the embassy, I think, while it is a temporary victory for the Jews, uh, it is, um, I think, part of what will be the reason for this growing divide in the end days, where they cannot wait to come and tear down that building. And destroy Israel once and for all. Guys, I love you so much. It's a quarter till. So, hey, I'm not sure. Are we meeting for Labor Day next week? Okay. I thought we were taking the week off for Labor Day. So, don't come next week. I'll see you back in two weeks. And we'll pick up right where we left off. God, help us, I pray, to live with urgency. Lord, as an end times army of sold out, spirit filled, fully devoted followers of Jesus, until we see you, in Jesus' name, amen. Have an awesome week. God bless you.